This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 18, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This, inshallah, will be a continuation of the story regarding the first 100 years of Islam after the Prophet Muhammad's death. And this episode is a prelude to the Battle of the Camel. Now, this is mostly an introduction to the primary players, that is Aisha and Ali. And it is here that I must once again give my disclaimer that as someone who has been primarily raised in the Sunni faith or the Sunni version of the Islamic faith, I think that's a better way of saying it, and one who has been educated in the Sunni version of the Islamic faith, expect this podcast to be from a Sunni perspective. Just got to lay that out there. Inshallah, stay tuned after the show for some important announcements. Show notes will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ali1. Ali is being spelled A-L-I and then the number one. So with that, let's go on a, Let's go on ahead. Let me get my words straight. Let's go on ahead and get into the show. This is season two, episode 18, Ali and Aisha. <laughs> Ali ibn Abi Talib was the fourth and final of the Khulafar al-Rashidin, the righteous caliphs. When ranking these first four caliphs, there is no disagreement that Abu Bakr was first and Omar was second. However, there are some questions when it comes to ranking the other two. Most Islamic scholars tend to rank Uthman above Ali. And if we only consider their political achievements as caliph, then Uthman definitely deserves that honor. Uthman ruled longer than Ali, ruled over a united empire, and accomplished things that Muslims still benefit from today. Ali, on the other hand, only ruled for five years, and much of that was spent fighting other Muslims. But if we consider their entire lives in service of Islam, then one can make a strong argument for the case of Ali. Like the three caliphs before him, Ali was related to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, through marriage. But, unlike the others, Ali was also related to the Prophet through blood. Ali's father, Abu Talib, and Prophet Muhammad's father, Abdullah, were brothers. A few years before Muhammad became Prophet Muhammad, Ali's father, Abu Talib, was going through financial difficulties. To make things easier for Abu Talib, Ali, then just a little boy, moved in with Muhammad. Muhammad took a paternal interest in Ali and raised him like his own son. Ali never returned to live with his own father. Ali was nine years old when Prophet Muhammad received the message of Islam. Ali believed in him from the very beginning and would prove it throughout his life. As an adult, Ali married the Prophet's youngest and most beloved daughter, Fatima, they had four children between them, two boys and two girls. Their two sons, Hassan and Hussein, would play major roles in the history of Islam. Unlike the other caliphs, Ali stood out as an excellent fighter. 
he racked up an impressive list of kills during his military career, and his military record dwarfs his predecessors, Othman ibn Affan. Ali took part in most of the major battles during the Prophet Muhammad's lifetime. These include Badr, Uhud, Khandak, Mecca, and Khaybar. After the Prophet's death, Ali took on an advisory role to the first three caliphs. Omar, in particular, relied on Ali for his wisdom and knowledge of Islamic law. In today's world, Ali is perhaps the second most divisive figure in Islam. The majority of Muslims, known collectively as Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah, or simply Sunni, view Ali as a highly respected companion of Prophet Muhammad. To Sunni Muslims, he is, at best, on the same level as the first three caliphs before him, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman. But a minority segment of the Muslim world has a much higher view of Ali. They believe Ali is the first imam and the rightful successor to Prophet Muhammad. They are known collectively as Shi'atu Ali, or simply Shiite. There are many Shiite branches, and their view of Ali ranges from moderate to very extreme. Most Shiites have a moderate view of Ali that ranks him below Prophet Muhammad, but above the rest of humanity, including the other companions. But there are some more obscure Shiite branches that raise Ali to the level of divinity. The one thing that all Shiites believe is that Ali should have been the first caliph instead of Abu Bakr. This insult is further magnified, according to the Shiites, by the illegitimate caliphates of Omar and Uthman. These are just a few of a long list of alleged betrayals, abuse, and violations the Shiites claim were committed against Ali and his family. Ali's problems really began when he became caliph a week after Uthman was murdered. Even though most of the people of Medina pledged allegiance to Ali, he really needed the validation of the major companions. He especially needed the support of Talha ibn Ubaidullah and Zubair ibn al-Awwam. Talha and Zubair were both early converts to Islam and were veterans of the Battle of Badr. Along with Ali, they were candidates for caliph when Uthman was ultimately selected. Before accepting it himself, Ali had even offered to pledge allegiance to either one of them if they wanted to be caliph instead. However, both had refused. Initially, they were reluctant to pledge allegiance to Ali since the situation in Medina was very chaotic. Then one of Ali's followers threatened Tolha and Zubair if they did not give the pledge. They agreed to pledge allegiance to Ali on the condition that he would prosecute Uthman's killers. This exhibited one of the major weaknesses in Ali's caliphate. Many of his followers were among those who protested against Uthman. It should be noted that there were many companions who gave Ali their full support. However, much of his base came from the same capricious and extremist group of people who justified rioting against Uthman. Though Talha and Zubair gave a hesitant pledge to Ali, there were some companions in Medina who absolutely refused to accept him. 
Among them was Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the great general who conquered much of Persia. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas locked himself inside his house and would not give Ali the Pledge of Allegiance. But he did promise that he would not cause any trouble. Another companion who did not give pledge to Ali was Abdullah ibn Omar, the son of Omar ibn al-Khattab. He would ultimately leave the chaos in Medina and move to Mecca. Outside Medina, the Banu Umayyah began making their way toward Syria. Banu Umayyah literally means the children of Umayyah, but a better translation is the Umayyah clan. This was the same clan that Uthman belonged to. Uthman's cousin, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, was the governor of Syria. He had ruled there for over 15 years and had proven himself to be a competent administrator and commander. The diverse population of Syria included Muslims, Christians, and Jews. They adored Muawiyah and there was no question of their loyalty. This was in sharp contrast to Ali, who was having a difficult time just getting the city of Medina behind him. One of the biggest obstacles Ali faced was finding those responsible for Uthman's death. He did question Naila, Uthman's wife, to see what she knew. However, the only person she recognized in the crowd that attacked Uthman was Ali's stepson, Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, and she confirmed that he left the house before Uthman was killed. There were many things working against Ali in trying to find Uthman's killers. For one, the entire incident happened in a fit of rage. The rioters had a mob mentality, and as soon as the deed was done, everyone fled. And there was no chance of anyone coming forward. Another problem was finding the actual killer from among the crowd. There were many people protesting Uthman during that 40-day siege, but only a small portion of them broke into his house. And of those who did break into his house, only a few of them actually attacked him. And of those who did attack Uthman, only one person dealt the killing blow. Another hindrance for Ali was the nature of Medina society. Medina was a holy city that was the home of Prophet Muhammad and the seat of the Islamic empire. Murder and violence was virtually unheard of here. Even today, these things are extremely rare in Medina. The society at that time was not equipped to deal with a murder investigation. In hindsight, perhaps we can speculate about what Ali could have done better. What we know for certain is that Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was in the house a few minutes before Uthman was killed. Perhaps Ali could have questioned him to get the names of other people who were also in the house. And with those details, Perhaps Ali could have conducted a manhunt to find the others and get more information. And perhaps that would have led to the person or persons responsible for killing Uthman. Unfortunately, we do not know why Ali did not go this route. All we know is that whatever attempts Ali did make at finding the killers, it did not yield any fruit. This will be a constant theme in the conflict between Ali and his opponents. They were upset about his perceived indifference in finding the killers. 
Ali countered that it was impossible for him to find the killers without the full support of the empire. To address this lack of support, Ali decided to depose the existing governors in the empire and replace them with his own. Two of Ali's early advisors were the companions Murira ibn Shu'ba and Abdullah ibn Abbas. They both disagreed with Ali's decision to depose Uthman's governors. Murira ibn Shu'ba encouraged Ali to keep the current governors and work on earning their loyalty. Ibn Abbas had a more tactical suggestion. He advised Ali to leave Medina completely and let it be consumed by the chaos. Eventually, things would get so bad that people would beg him to return and then he would have their full support. Ali rejected both ideas and continued with his plan to replace all the governors. Upset with this decision, Murida ibn Shu'ba left Medina and moved to Mecca. There were five major provinces in the empire at that time. Yemen, Kufa, Basra, Egypt, and Syria. Yemen accepted Ali's new governor peacefully. Kufa was governed by the companion Abu Musa al-Ashari. He did not accept Ali's replacement, but sent word back to Medina that he was loyal. Abu Musa assured Ali that he and the people of Kufa had given him the Pledge of Allegiance. The provinces of Basra and Egypt were divided about accepting Ali's replacements. Even though the new governors did take power, they did not enjoy the full support of the people. The new governor for Syria never even made it to Damascus. Before Ali's envoy could enter the city, Muawiyah sent soldiers to intercept them. The soldiers said Syria was not in need of a new governor and that it would be best if they returned to Medina. Ali decided to write Muawiyah a letter in order to ascertain his loyalty. Perhaps Muawiyah was like Abu Musa in Kufa, who was loyal to Ali but wanted to remain governor. Muawiyah waited three months before responding to Ali's letter. When Ali opened Muawiyah's letter, it was a blank sheet of paper simply addressed, From Muawiyah to Ali. This passive-aggressive response made it clear where Muawiyah stood. There was no way the people of Syria would ever give Ali the pledge. In fact, some within the Umayyah clan blamed Ali for Uthman's death. With Muawiyah openly defying the caliphate, Ali began making preparations to invade Syria. He also sent word to his loyal governors to do the same. Many companions disagreed with Ali on this and suggested he exercise patience with Muawiyah. Tolha and Zubair were especially critical of this decision. They reminded Ali that a condition of their allegiance was that he pursue and punish Uthman's killers. Several months had now passed since his murder and not much headway had been done in that effort. Ali had determined that it was impossible to find the killers and that it was time for everyone to move on and let it go. This, of course, did not sit well with Tolha and Zubair. Combined with his decision to invade Syria, Tolha and Zubair decided it was time to leave Medina. They received permission from Ali to go to Mecca for Umrah and never returned. When Tolha and Zubair arrived in Mecca, they found a city bristling with anger over the murder of Uthman. 
and the primary instigator of this outrage was none other than the Prophet's widow, Aisha bint Abi Bakr. Aisha and the other wives of Prophet Muhammad were collectively known as Ummahatul Mu'minin, or the mothers of the believers. They had all left Medina months earlier to make Hajj when Uthman was still alive. The siege and murder of Uthman took place while they were on their way back to Medina. Due to the ensuing chaos in Medina, the Ummahatul Mu'minin turned back to Mecca and stayed there as Ali became caliph. Like many others, Aisha called on Ali to quickly find and punish Uthman's killers. And like many others, she was disappointed when Ali had not done so after several months. Throughout most of her life, Aisha steered clear of politics. Even after her husband's death, she was not politically active. But Uthman's murder changed things. She was shocked and outraged that his killers were freely walking about Medina. Though Aisha was a woman in a patriarchal society, the respect and honor she commanded as the Prophet's widow was incalculable. In the wake of Uthman's death, she acted as the de facto ruler of Mecca. Even the actual governor of Mecca deferred to Aisha. From behind a curtain, where only her closest family members could see her, she began to organize and drum up support to find and punish Uthman's killers. If Ali is the second most divisive figure in Islam, without a doubt, Aisha is the first. Aisha is universally beloved and respected by Sunni Muslims. Her contributions to Islamic scholarship are enormous. She is considered the most reliable narrator of hadiths, and many of her teachings form the core of Islamic law. Scholars from all over the Muslim world used to journey to her home to learn about the Prophet. Most of what we know today about Prophet Muhammad's personal and private life comes from Aisha. Aisha is also the most popular name among Muslim girls. The name has also become somewhat popular in the African American community. But the Shiite view of Aisha is the complete opposite. Their allegations against Aisha are numerous. They claim she told lies about Prophet Muhammad, that she was jealous of the Prophet's first wife Khadija, that she had a general dislike of the Prophet's clan, the Banu Hashim, that she uttered several statements of blasphemy, that she conspired to have her father, Abu Bakr, chosen as the first caliph, and most egregiously, she harbored hatred for Ali and openly defied his caliphate. We will ignore most of these claims. Sunni and Shiite Muslims have been arguing about them for over a thousand years. Depending on which branch of Islam you follow, you will either accept them or reject them. But, for the purposes of this story, it is important that we investigate the final claim regarding her supposed hatred and defiance of Ali. Taking an objective look at their histories, there does appear to have been some friction between Aisha and Ali. Once during the Prophet's lifetime, some of his wives approached his daughter, Fatima, who was also Ali's wife. It seemed the Prophet was spending a lot of time with Aisha and they wanted him to be more equitable. When Fatima discussed the matter with her father, he simply replied that she should love Aisha because he loved Aisha. 
When Fatima returned to the women, she said she would never speak to her father about Aisha again. Another moment of friction occurred during the Ifk scandal. The Ifk was a scandal that arose in Medina when Aisha was rumored to have been unfaithful to her husband. Like most rumors, these accusations were based on insignificant events that were blown out of proportion. During the fifth year of the migration, the Prophet led an expedition to battle the tribe of Banu Mustalik. It was his habit to bring one of his wives along during these long journeys. It just so happened to be Aisha's turn on this occasion. The Muslims were victorious, but Aisha got separated from the main group on the return to Medina. Aisha rode in a howdah, which was a tent-like box atop her camel. She had misplaced her necklace and no one noticed when she went looking for it. A man named Safwan ibn Mu'attal had the responsibility of bringing up the rear of the Prophet's caravan. His job was to travel a good distance behind the main party and pick up any items that may have been lost or left behind. Safwan found Aisha sitting alone in the desert, waiting for someone to realize she was missing. He helped her ascend her camel and escorted her back to Medina. As soon as Safwan and Aisha returned to Medina, the rumors began to fly. For several weeks, Aisha lived under a cloud of suspicion. Even Prophet Muhammad seemed unsure as he encouraged Aisha to tell the truth about whatever happened. Her husband's doubts were too much for Aisha and she went to live with her parents during this period. Ali's response to the accusations was very straightforward. He saw no reason for the Prophet to take the rumors personally. In fact, he was rather dismissive of the whole affair. Allah has not put any restrictions on you, he advised Prophet Muhammad. There are plenty of other women besides her. But Ali also offered a solution. Ask her slave girl, he told the Prophet. She will tell you the truth. Prophet Muhammad took his advice and asked the slave Barida about her mistress. Barida replied with the following. The only thing I can blame Aisha for is that she is an immature girl who sometimes falls asleep, leaving the bread dough unattended so it can be eaten by the goats. This exoneration from Barida was soon followed by revelation in the Quran proving Aisha's innocence. The verses exonerating Aisha begin with harsh penalties for those involved in the scandal. And those who accuse chaste women and then do not produce four witnesses, beat them with eighty lashes and never accept their testimony after that. And those are the defiantly disobedient. They are then condemned and guaranteed a harsh punishment in the next life as well. Indeed, those who came with falsehood are a group among you. Do not think it bad for you, rather it is good for you. For every person among them is what he has earned from the sin, and he who took upon himself the greater portion thereof, for him is a great punishment. The Muslim community was also rebuked for not rejecting the rumors outright. Why, when you heard it, did not the believing men and believing women think good of one another and say, This is an obvious falsehood? And why, when you heard it, did you not say, It is not for us to speak of this? Exalted are you, O Allah, this is a great slander. 
There are also reports that Prophet Muhammad predicted problems between Aisha and Ali. Ali was reportedly shocked by this prediction and stated that if it were true, then he was the worst off of the two. Even after the Prophet's death, there was friction between the families of Aisha and Ali. A dispute arose between Fatima and Abu Bakr, the Prophet's successor and Aisha's father. Fatima demanded some property that she felt her father had left as her inheritance. However, Abu Bakr refused to give it to her. He claimed Prophet Muhammad forbade inheritance to be given to his descendants. This created a rift between the two families, and Ali and Fatima stopped speaking to Abu Bakr. Ali and Abu Bakr did not reconcile until after Fatima died several months later. These awkward moments notwithstanding, it is questionable if Aisha actually hated Ali as many Shiites claim. These moments of tension seem more like isolated events that occur within every family. The reality is, there were very few occasions where Aisha and Ali would have had any direct contact. Furthermore, it would have been inappropriate for Ali to have even spoke to Aisha except from behind a curtain. Finally, the fact that Ali raised Aisha's half-brother Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr indicates there was no animosity between the two families. Any suggestion otherwise is a fabrication created by people who lived long after the two parties in question. There are also those who claim that Aisha was raising an army in Mecca in order to overthrow Ali. This would only make sense if we believe that Aisha hated Ali and was willing to sacrifice Muslim lives in order to end his caliphate. This view is unacceptable to Sunni Muslims. Nevertheless, that does not excuse Aisha's actions in Mecca. She had decided to take things into her own hands and was building a force to hunt down Uthman's killers. And she had support from many prominent individuals. These included Talha and Zubair, several members of the Umayya clan still residing in Mecca, Ali's former advisor, Murida ibn Shu'ba, and the former governors of Basra and Yemen whom Ali had deposed. Eventually, Aisha was able to organize a force of 1,500 people. They headed for Medina with the intention of finding Uthman's killers. The overall sentiment was that if Ali would not dispense justice, then they would have to do it themselves. Aisha's primary advisors were Talha and Zubair. They began to express doubt about heading straight for Medina. The situation was still chaotic and even Ali did not have full control of the city. There were rumors that over 6,000 people had taken part in the protests against Uthman. If those numbers were true, Aisha's force wouldn't stand a chance against them. That's when Abdullah ibn Amir, the former governor of Basra and Uthman's cousin, put forth an idea. Even though he lost his position when Ali became caliph, Abdullah ibn Amir still had many connections in Basra. He suggested they head for Basra instead and try to rally support there like they did in Mecca. This idea was agreed upon and the group slightly adjusted course towards Basra. Medina is 200 miles north of Mecca. Basra is 750 miles to the northeast. 
As they passed through various towns and cities along the way, more and more people joined Aisha's quest. By the time they reached Basra, almost a month later, Aisha's group numbered almost 3,000. This was certainly an amazing feat for a middle-aged woman in 7th century Arabia. Unfortunately, her actions also sparked a civil war that would forever split the Muslim community. Okay, alhamdulillah, I hope that that was useful, engaging, and beneficial for you, inshallah. This was a fairly difficult um, episode to do, and I have a feeling this would be a very difficult period of Islam to cover because it is such a divisive issue. I have already received two comments on the website from people asking me not to talk about this subject. They claim that um, talking about these things is just going to bring up divisions and stuff within Muslims. I do understand that sentiment and I do respect it. However, the Muslim world is already kind of divided and it has been like this between Sunnis and Shiites for over a thousand years. I really don't think this podcast is going to make things any better or any worse one way or the other. Inshallah, I do hope it makes things better, but I don't think that we're going to change our minds about our beliefs because of this podcast. And of course, this brings up the topic of Sunni and Shiite. I'm not going to get too much into the differences of uh, opinions and beliefs. I think we covered quite a few of them already. But I do know that there are many Muslims who say that they're just Muslim. They don't want to label themselves either Sunni and Shiite. And I understand that is good. And often I try to take the same path as well. But at some point, you got to have to you kind of have to make certain decisions. You got to say where you stand on certain issues. And particularly when it comes to the personalities of Aisha and Ali, where do you stand? And depending on your answer to that question, then that's going to put you in one camp or the other, whether you like it or not. If you are a person who respects both Ali and Aisha and say they are they were both companions and family members of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam who were human who may have made mistakes but are not going to hell and did not leave Islam or anything like that then that puts you in the in the Sunni camp whether you like it or not. If you say otherwise as particularly about Aisha that she committed major sins that she betray the Prophet then whether you like it or not, that puts you into the Shiite camp. So I just want you to understand that reality. I don't want to cause divisions that that don't exist. Once again, the divisions already exist, so I don't see how I could cause them. But I want you to, I don't like it, I guess, when people bring up these unrealistic scenarios. I'm not either. And I wish I could have that luxury. In fact, my mother, who converted to Islam as an adult, she never really had a very in-depth Islamic um, education or anything like that. She did take that that uh, stance. She did. She was a person who just said, I'm just Muslim. I don't want to give myself a label beyond just being Muslim. And that, once again, I wish I had that luxury. But unfortunately, after, well, maybe it's fortunately, Allah knows best. After studying Islam and studying the history and my mother sent me to go study overseas, after all that, I kind of know where I stand in this, in this matter. 
And perhaps had I been raised in Iraq or Iran or in a Shiite family, I, I probably would believe the same, the opposite way. I understand that. But Allah has put me here. And this is um, my studies of, of Islam and Islamic history leads me to, uh, to conclude that the Sunni version of history is what has really happened. Now, be that as it may, I don't think we have to be extreme regarding these beliefs. I don't think we have to necessarily hate each other, write books or polemics um, degrading and putting down the other side. I don't think we have to build websites dedicated to blasting Shiites or Sunnis or one or the other. Definitely, definitely do not believe that these differences, these events that happened over a thousand years ago should lead to murder and violence and warfare. Absolutely not. Hopefully there's some way we can learn to, at the very least, respect the fact that we're going to have these differences and still cooperate and live together in a peaceful way. After all, there is more in common between Sunnis and Shiites than there are between Sunnis and Christians or Shiites and Christians. And for the most part, we tend to get along okay with Christians, for the most part. There are a few occasions, such as the Crusades and Bosnia, where uh, things don't go, go so well. But for the most part, Muslims and Christians kind of get along okay. So if they can do it, if we can do it with people who are of a completely different faith, I think we should be able to do it with people who are, who at least profess 95% of the same thing, who agree on 95% of the same beliefs. We're going to leave it at that, inshallah. Okay, I want to apologize for last week's episode. I released two episodes regarding the slander of Imam Bukhari, and I accidentally released the first episode twice. And as soon as I found out, I corrected the mistake. But by the time I figured it out, over 500 downloads had already gone through of the um, of the duplicate episode. So if you are one of those people who got a second episode, uh, who got the second, ep- who got the first episode twice, guess that's what I'm trying to say, then my apologies. If you did not get it, that means I uh, I fixed it before <laughs> before you recognized that mistake, which is okay. Also regarding last week's episode. I realized I was kind of shocked and a little bit um, um, cringy. I cringed at some of the things I said. Goodness gracious. I recorded the episode two years ago. So um, (laughs) I was using some references in there that I would not use in an episode or a history podcast today. But, you know, we mature and we live and learn. Okay, a few other things I want to cover before we wrap this up. I gave a khutbah in Montgomery uh, this past Friday, Montgomery, Alabama. The uh, recording will be available on the show notes page, and that will be uh, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ali1, and Ali is being spelled A-L-I, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ali1, and you will see the, you will get, be able to download and listen or record or listen to the recording of my khutbah from this past Friday. I want to give you a book recommendation as well. This is the uh, book called History of Medina Munawwara. It is a short book, uh, fairly short, printed by Dado Salam Publishers. Had lots has lots of colorful pictures and historical sites of um, historical things. And it's a very wonderful book, very short, but it's still very um, appealing to the eye, if nothing else. It's available on Amazon, and there will be links in the show notes as well. 
Wrapping this up with uh, this week's favorite Nasheed. It is Al-Khalik by Rashid and Zayn Bika. You can get them all at the show notes. And uh, inshallah, you'll be hearing the song in a few minutes. So we're going to wrap this up now. I once again want to encourage you to go and visit the show notes page, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ali1. If you go there, you can do several things, including listen to my khutbah from Friday. You can support the Islamic History Podcast with a pledge. There will be links to do that there. You can share this episode with your friends and family, and I strongly encourage you to do so. You can also follow me on social media if you choose to do so. You may also read a transcript of today's show on the show notes page. And uh, two more things. You can as well uh, get the link to the book recommendation, The History of Medina Tumanawada. And finally, you can uh, get watch a video of this week's Nasheed. And so with that, I will once again encourage you to visit the show notes, show notes page and support the Islamic History Podcast in whichever way you can. Just go visit islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ali1. And we are now going to roll out of here with Al-Khalik by Rashid and Zayn Bika. Inshallah, you will hear from me or I will speak to you, however you want to frame it. Uh, inshallah, we'll, we'll see each other next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah Muhammadur Rasulullah Muhammadur Rasulullah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Al-Khaliq Rivers, lakes, streams, and rain Bow their waves in pure submission Upon the earth to praise His name La ilaha Upon the air or in the sea That does not sing with wonder Praising in 